whenever the Bible repeats something, particularly when it repeats something often, we should sit up and pay attention because God is suggesting by the very repetition itself that if we're not careful, we're going to forget. And when we see Jesus saying things like, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I am saying this to you, it's suggesting that if he did not provide that kind of emphasis, we might not get the point or at least the gravity of it. And I start here because in Revelation 22, we have come to the end of the description at the end of this wonderful book of what heaven's going to be like. We have gotten a full chapter in Revelation 21 talking about the new heaven and the new earth, the new city, Jerusalem, that will be waiting for us. In Revelation 22, we studied this morning the new reality that there will be no more curse, that heaven and earth will be united as one, human with human united as one, human with nature united as one, all of us rightly ordered around the throne of God and that where the throne of God is, center there is order. And now we're done with a description of what heaven is. We don't really get another description of it in the rest of this chapter. Instead, Jesus wants to send one message to us really clearly. So clearly and with such repetition that not one of us could miss it, not even a child. And he says here in verse 6, he said unto me, this is an angel speaking to John of the one that had been giving him, if you will, the tour of heaven or of the new earth and the eternal state. He said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. And now Jesus' words break through. Behold, I come quickly. And to make sure that you haven't missed that message, in verse 12, Jesus again breaks in, and behold, I come quickly. And just in case one more time of repetition is needed, in verse 20, he says, surely I come quickly. Now, I don't know about you, but in the span of, what, about 15 verses, when Jesus says, I come quickly, three different times, I think he wants you to know that he is coming quickly. I think not only that, he wants to tell you that this message is relevant to you. It has a reality that should change the way you live today and the way you think about your life. 
Now, what I want to suggest is in that each of these exhortations, these messages, I come quickly, Jesus is is doing different things. He's sending different messages. Here in verse 7, I think tonight we'll see in context that he's talking about a, a particular kind of instruction that he wants all of us to take. In verse 12, if you look at it in context, he seems to be communicating a particular kind of motivation that all of us should ingrain for ourselves. And God willing, we'll talk about that next Sunday morning. And in verse 20, in context, he seems to be inviting a particular anticipation in when he says, I come quickly and Lord willing, we'll look at that next Sunday evening. For these next three sermons, I just want to focus on each one of these messages. I come quickly and the effect that it should have on our lives in light of everything that we've studied about the eternal state in Revelation 21 and 22. He is coming quickly. Let's be instructed. He's coming quickly. Let's be motivated. He's coming quickly. Let's be anticipating. Tonight, the message simply titled, Behold, I come quickly. Now, what instruction is Jesus wanting all of us to take from this simple message, Behold, again, putting that exclamation point on it, Behold, pay attention, I come quickly. Let's start first of all here with the reality. The reality of his quick coming. Now, we need to understand here when Jesus says, I come quickly, this Greek word that he uses could be understood one of two ways. And it's used in this, these two different ways in Scripture. One of them is, he could be saying, I am coming suddenly. I am coming in a rapid speed. Now there's an idea in John chapter 11 when, uh, when scripture is describing Lazarus' funeral and ultimately Jesus raising him from the dead. There's a passage there in which uh, this, this Greek root is used to describe Mary getting up suddenly. And the idea is Mary gets up quickly, not to say in in a matter of time, right? Like she gets up quickly compared to this person. It's, it's, It's a sudden speed. It's a sudden movement. And so Jesus could be saying, I'm coming suddenly. It's going to be swift. My speed from heaven is going to be at lightning pace. That could be it. The second idea of this word quickly is that it is soon, that it is quickly in light of time. It's not going to be far in the distance. It's going to be immediately in the distance. Now, the question here is that Jesus gave this message, I come quickly, to these individual churches in Asia Minor through John. He told these words to John almost 2,000 years ago. And he has not come. And that has led some and would lead some to say, maybe he didn't mean I'm coming soon. Maybe he just meant I'm coming suddenly. I don't know when that is going to happen. It's just going to be sudden. 
Well, throughout the church age, Christians have believed that what Jesus means here is that he's coming soon, quickly, at any time, imminently. And I think this is supported by the rest of the context here. Even in verse six, we say, in which this angel says to John, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. We then see in verse 10, he saith unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. He's not talking about a rapid coming sometime way off distant in the future that we don't have to worry about. He's talking about something that is imminent that could happen any day. And that is why we believe, you can look at it in the statement of faith on our website, we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That the next Christological event to happen in all of human history is when Jesus will come in the clouds and we will go to meet him in the air and that that is imminent. It could happen tonight before even this service is done. It is, if you would look up the word imminent in our dictionary, you would see a definition like this. It is about to happen. Now, one of the ways we think about the imminent coming of Christ, and it can trip us up, is to say, well, Jesus said it was, it was imminent 2,000 years ago, and he still hasn't come, so it must not have been imminent. And we're thinking about it the wrong way. Because we're thinking about it like a train going down the tracks, and it's coming toward an intersection, and it's a really long way off, and it just keeps on steadily getting closer. But that's not really the right way to think about imminence. The right way to think about imminence is that we're going along the brink of a river. We're passing down a river and we're going right on the bank. We're right on the brink of it. And we've been on the brink of it for 2,000 years. And we don't know when the time is that we're going in. It was just as imminent to them 2,000 years ago as it is today. And if Jesus chooses to tarry for another 2,000 years, it will be just as imminent as it was today. Another way to think about it is the way that James puts it in his epistle. He says, the judge, he's speaking of the Lord as the judge, the judge is at the door. Now, if you just think about this, it makes sense in what it means that he's imminent. If we were to close this door here and there were to be some great person that we were expecting to come through these doors, every single Sunday evening, we might be saying, is he going to come through those doors tonight? Especially if that person were in the building and we just didn't know when they were going to come through the door. They're at the door. Jesus is at the door. He is on the brink. His coming is imminent. And that's why he says, I am coming quickly. Because truly, he is at the door and his coming will indeed be sudden and it will be soon. So the question then for ourselves is, why hasn't he come yet? And to answer this question, scripture gives us a very simple answer. And I just, just for our benefit and in case you feel the need to explain this or you're having a conversation with someone, scripture anticipates that people will use the delayed coming of Jesus Christ to say, this is all nonsense. You're saying you're waiting for Jesus, but he hasn't been coming for 2,000 years. And look, look at Paul. He was expecting him to come in his lifetime and he didn't. 
Look at this early church. They were expecting them to come and he didn't. This it must be fiction. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Notice what Peter says. He says in verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. It's all the same today as it was back then. There's no difference in terms of this imminent eschatological event. Here's what Peter says. For this they willingly are ignorant of. They willingly are ignorant of this. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. What calamitous event is he referring to here? The flood, Noah building a boat, people mocking him undoubtedly and scoffing him. What are you talking about? We've never seen anything like that. And one day the heavens opened and the rain came down. And suddenly in that moment, they recognized the truth of what he was saying only too late. And now notice what Peter says. He's going to make an analogy. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store. That same word of judgment are being reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition or destruction, the judgment of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. He said, there will come scoffers. There will come mockers in the last day doubting this. He said, but you don't be ignorant that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack. He's not delayed concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. The idea here is, is patient to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, what is he saying there when he says, a day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day? When he's saying one day is as a thousand years, he's not saying God finishes one day and he's like, "Woo, that was a long one. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? There's one thing we have to recognize about God. God is indisputably above time. Scripture says of God, he sees the end from the beginning. Now you say, what, is, what would that be like? Think about it this way. Imagine that you're at a big parade this summer. We used to go to the Manitou Days Parade out in White Bear growing up. I'm sure the Molitors are quite familiar with that one. This wonderful parade. We always used to go uh, out to that parade and past us. We'd park down it at a spot and these bands would come through and people doing juggling and people uh, hawking the paper and the local politician coming and glad handing people. Now imagine yourself parked down and you just see procession after procession after procession coming one at a time. That's how we view time and it's how we view life but not God. God is like someone takes a news helicopter up a thousand feet and looks down and sees the whole parade from beginning to end. And in that sense, it's not as if experiencing one year by one year by one year. It's seeing the entire thing from the beginning. 
And that's why we have a hard time understanding things like how God could truly choose us from before the foundation of the world. Or how the lamb could be slain from before the foundation of the world. How the purposes of God for the salvation of souls and the redemption of mankind could in a sense already be seen and known before time. Because God is, 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 if you will, up in that helicopter looking down at all of time and telling the end from the beginning. It's beyond our finite ability. And yet God acts within the constraints of time. To say that God is above time does not rule out that God nonetheless acts in our calendar. He acts in years. He acts in days. He acts in minutes. As the New Testament says, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. In the exact perfect time, God acted. Now, what does that mean? It means that on one hand, God is above time so that in one day, it is as if it is a thousand years. And the flip side is also true. A thousand years to God who sees the end from the beginning is in his calendar as if it were one day. And so we should not, Peter is saying, as these scoffers who say God is delaying, he's delayed his season. This must all be uh, uh, not a historical reality. We say to those people, no, you don't understand God. God does not act on your calendar. God does not act on your preferred timetable. When Jesus says, I come quickly, he means quickly, whether that is one year or a thousand years. And we hold on to that hope, no matter whether we see the return of Jesus in our lifetime. So notice what he's saying here in Revelation chapter 22. What is this entire picture coming when he has, has, has thrown open the curtains of heaven to reveal to John and to us what is awaiting us and then he says, I'm coming quickly. What's he trying to do? Look with me at verse 6, back to Revelation chapter 22. The Lord God of the holy prophet sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. He's saying it's right around the corner. Oh, by the way, I come quickly. It's going to be soon. Oh, by the way, verse 10, the time is at hand. By the way, people who are listening to, John, to James's epistle, the judge is at the door. He's here. What's he doing? He's trying to connect the reality of his coming to the relevance to you and me. And that's our second point here. The relevance. What he's saying is to John and all of us, my coming implicates you because it could come in your lifetime. My coming is relevant to you. It's not something to look out in the future and say, maybe three generations from now we'll receive that. It's relevant. Now, if you think about how this does relate to each of us, I was thinking about examples of how we create this kind of anticipation for our children or other things to create this kind of anticipation, to create this kind of relevance. One thing that I've done with my kids is when I'm not preaching and we'll be listening to someone else of our very capable speakers here preaching, sometimes I'll say to them, children, I want you to make a mark every time he says the word Jesus. And suddenly the children are there with a piece of paper and a little pen and they're actually listening. Or even if they're not like actively listening, they're passively listening and they hear Jesus. 
oh, all right, and they mark it down. What am I trying to do? I'm saying this sermon is for you. It's not just for dad and mom. You should be listening too. And here's a task to help you anticipate, to realize it's relevant. There's another example, a more grown-up one. I uh, have to do these things as a lawyer called continuing legal education. This year is my year to report. I've still got like 20 hours of continuing legal education I have to do in a matter of months. I really need prayer. Uh, This has been a, a true season of procrastination as every time I have to meet this requirement is. But in any event, what I found in these CLE sessions, they realize that these things are boring. And so various legal education boards will do this. They are so dastardly. They know that they're going to do, people are going to do what I do, which is turn it on the volume, but turn it down really low and then get my work done. So I can like, it's just kind of like bouncing around in the atmosphere, but I'm not listening to it. I just have to check the box that I heard it. And so what they do is they'll say, they'll break in like halfway through the CLA, CLE and they say, here's a code. And they'll tell you at the beginning, you have to know the code and you have to actually write it down and like type it into the screen or you won't get credit. These people, I tell you, are dastardly. They're trying to actually make you pay attention. And so sure enough, I'll just have to have that volume tuned up low enough so it's not distracting me, but just high enough so I can hear that code. Actually, I don't think Minnesota even requires you to do that, but why not? Better, be, better to be safe than sorry. What's the point? It's saying this This lecture is relevant to you. Listen up. And when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, the time is at hand, I'm right at the door, he's saying, it's relevant. You need to be paying attention. Now, why is this so important to us? Because frankly, what I see sometimes when it comes to this book of Revelation by even good meaning, well-meaning, and very sincere people is an approach to this book of Revelation that effectively says, you don't need to pay attention to it. This book is really mysterious. It's hard to understand. And so don't really bother. Let's focus on today and obeying the commands of Jesus, and all that stuff, it'll make sense to us when we get there. Now, there is a grain of truth to that. And I think what's motivating it for some people is, frankly, embarrassment. They have some people, seen people go way overboard on prophecy. They recognize that back in the 80s, people were associating the Soviet Union with all of these things. They've seen throughout human history, people have tried to bring these events into their present time and they have failed woefully. And so we just say, let's just wash our hands of trying to understand the things that are awaiting us. But friends, this chapter just doesn't allow us to take that kind of position, in my view. We can't just wipe our hands and say, whatever is happening in the future is going to happen. No, listen to what he says here in verse 6. These sayings, what sayings? The sayings we've been studying here in the book of Revelation. These sayings are faithful and true. Friends, they're not allegories. They're not exquisite images that we have to conjure up, uh, these, these creative rationales. These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants. Who is that? Us. The things which must shortly be done. What's he saying? Pay attention. I'm showing you what's going to happen in human history. Listen up. And if that weren't enough, go back to the very first chapter of this book. Revelation chapter 1. 
look at how the Holy Spirit chose to start this book. Very first verse of this book says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things, which must shortly come to pass. Hmm, where did we read that before? At the end of the book? And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Where did we read that before? Now Jesus says in verse 7, Behold, I come quickly, chapter 22 again. Blessed is he that keepeth the saying of the prophecy of this book. Friends, there is, no, there is no box on the checklist for us to choose the option, tune out and not pay attention to this book. It's too mysterious. I can't possibly even conjure it. So I'm just going to give up. That's not on the, that's not on the menu of options. Because what God is intending for us to do is to take the words of this prophecy and read them and study them and get excited for what's coming up next because he sent it to us for us to see what is at hand. Now, why is he doing this? He's doing this because, again, he wants the relevance of this reality to resonate in your soul and in my soul. He wants us to sit up and pay attention because he wants to change the way we think and the way we live. You know, I wonder if one of the ways we relate to preaching on the book of Revelation or on preaching particularly on the eternal state as we've been going through for the last several weeks is a little bit like what Ezekiel experienced. You remember Ezekiel, that prophet who had all these mysterious visions and all these, these strange messages to modern ears, doing things and saying things that seemed so confusing. But the people liked to listen to him. Here's what God says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33. He says of his people Israel, they come unto thee, Ezekiel, as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. You know, friends, when we preach the word, some don't even pay attention at all. They are gone. Their head is on the pew. Their phone is out. Whatever you want to say about it, they are not there. But there are others who come to hear the word of God. And where they are, they're ready to listen. But it's just to be entertained. And one of the tragedies of this book of Revelation, or of any time the word is preached, are by those who come to hear the word. But it's just like a beautiful voice. They just say, those are some pretty words. That's a nice thought to think of that off in the future. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm telling you that this is at hand because it might affect you today. So listen up. Listen up. It's relevant 
to you. You know, one of the biggest challenges we face in life is simply this. I was talking to Tabitha about this. is simply this. God is not real to most people. And I, I, I tragically say this about ourselves and, and I know about myself. Too often it's among Christians. Do you know, A.W. Tozer said this and he said this so rightly. He said the most important thing about a person is what he thinks of when he thinks of God. What do you, if you were to just imagine what God is to you right now, what comes into your mind, that's the most important thing about you. Why? Because when you sin, it's because God's not real enough to you. Do you know that's true? If for virtually every sin that we commit, if when you were in the throes of temptation about committing that sin, whatever sin it is, and I were to come up and point a gun at your head and say, do that, fall into that sin, and I will kill you. I think every single one of you would in that moment say, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because the reality of your life was greater than the reality of the temptation. I think for every one of us, if we were sitting on the precipice of falling into a sin that we knew was wrong and Jesus Christ came and pulled up a chair and sat right next to us, none of us would fall into that sin, no matter what it was. Why? Because the reality of Jesus Christ would overcome the reality of the temptation. And so that's why I say that the reality of God is the most important thing to you fighting temptation, that there is a God in heaven who is watching you and he is real and he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And the truth is whether in that moment my eyes of faith will latch hold on what is real and make it relevant to my own heart or whether instead the temptation will be more real to me than God is in that moment. You see, the relevance of God is absolutely central. And what we need to see is that in all of the ways we spend our time, we are making commentary on whether the things we've been studying in Revelation are real or not. How do we spend our time? It's going to show whether I think it's real or not. How am I going to spend my time tonight? It's going to show me whether I think Jesus is coming quickly or not. If I thought Jesus, if I knew certainly Jesus was coming tonight, what would I do differently in the next hour or two? Well, how are we to relate to this relevance? C.S. Lewis, in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, you should look it up and read it sometime if you never have. Sermon called The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Should you think about that? The Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. What he's saying is our desires are too weak, not too strong. It's not that we're compelled by these desires that are just too overwhelming for these things of this earth. He's saying, no, you just aren't awake to the most important desires of infinite joy awaiting you. And here's what he likens it to. I love this. He said, it's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. I want you to imagine a child in this city simply playing about with all the, the, the most meaningless, mundane things of life and you come up to him and say, you know what, have you ever been to a, a holiday at the beach before? And this child says, I don't even know what you're talking about. There's such a thing as a beach. You say, come on, let's go. Let me, let me tell you, have you ever heard of an ocean? He says, what? 
I'm playing with sticks or I'm playing with mud. I'm playing with sand. I'm playing with a ball here. What are you talking about? No, there's sand there. And there's a, a beach and there's sea breezes. And, and you try to explain it to them and it just is going right over the head of the child. They, they have no comprehension of what you're saying. It's not real to them. So they'll just keep on playing with mud pies. And C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased when God is offering us the equivalence of eternal, infinite joy on the most extraordinarily, extraordinary beach holiday we could imagine and we are playing with mud pies and desiring mud pies because that's all we know. You see, what Jesus is trying to say is this is not some fantastical far off thing that we can just think nice thoughts about and maybe it'll come to pass. He's saying it's coming and it's at the door. So it's relevant to you. Let it become the reality of your life. And again, I think this is so interesting that Jesus says here in verse 6, these sayings are faithful and true. And then he says in verse 7, blessed is he that keeps the saying of the prophecy of this book. You say, who was this book written to? Churches that had real problems. Real problems. That had Jezebels running around and corrupting their people. That were yoking up with Idols in their feasts and in even sexual gratification in these idol worships. People that had left their first love. People that were lukewarm. And what does Jesus talk to them about? Does Jesus confront it openly? Yeah. And then he says, I want to make sure this is really relevant to you. I want to make sure that my commands show their reality to you by telling you what's about to come. So listen up. You see, when someone tells you, no, ignore the book of Revelation. Let's not, let's, let's not argue about that. Let's not try to understand it or interpret it. Let's focus on stuff that's relevant today. I say, I say you're missing the whole point of the book of Revelation, which is to be really relevant to you today. Jesus is telling you what's coming in the future so that you can be changing and modifying your behavior accordingly in the moment today, just like those churches in Asia Minor, you needed to know what was coming tomorrow quickly, imminently, so that they could be ready and modify their behavior in the present. Friends, the reality is that his coming is imminent and that makes it relevant to every single one of us to be looking ahead to the things that are at hand, including the eternal state, all of God's promises to us in the gospel about what a new life in a new city of Jerusalem is going to be. And let's look thirdly and finally at the response. At the response. In these few short verses, the Holy Spirit wants to tell us how we should respond to the imminent instruction that we have received that Jesus is coming quickly. Notice what he says first in verse six. He said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the simple point here, friend, is this is a verification. Jesus wanted to tell John, John, everything you saw is gonna happen. And now it's our job to take John's words at face value and say he really saw it. In fact, John wants to, take a, to, to, to show us that because in verse 8, he says, I, John, saw these things and heard them. 
Friends, are you putting down your anchor in the truth of God's word about what is coming imminently? Do you believe it? Are you shaping your life around it? Jesus wants us to know that these sayings are true. But notice then what else he says. Verse 7, blessed is he that keepeth the saying of the prophecy of this book. You say, what sayings? There are hardly any commands. It's prophecy. It's looking ahead to the future. I think in one sense he is saying, listen up churches. Return to your first love. Run after pure doctrine. Come to me for cleansing. I think all of those things are true. But I wonder if one of the things that Jesus is most importantly saying here is this. Come into the spirit of this book. Come into the reality of this book. Come into what I intend this book to do to your life. You've heard that saying. Those who, there's of people who are too heavenly minded, they ain't no earthly good. Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. I want you to be heavenly minded because that's when you'll be most earthly good. I want you to be focused on what I have promised for you because it'll change the way you live. You know, some, sometimes you hear people point back to 1 Corinthians and say, I hath not heard, uh, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We can't possibly know what's coming in the future. And they just don't read the book of 1 Corinthians because that's not the point. What comes immediately after that verse? Do you know? But God has revealed them to us by his spirit. He's not saying in that passage, you're never going to be able to understand what God has for you in the future. He's saying God has told them to you. So listen to it by the Spirit and apply it and keep the sayings of what he said to you. Make them your earthly reality. But he says one other thing. Notice here in verse number 10. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. What on earth does he mean? Seal not the sayings of this prophecy. Well, there is an allusion here back to Revelation 10. Do you remember in Revelation 10, John has received a message from seven thunders? He hears these thunderous voices, but they're actually understandable voices. They are communicating a message, and he's just about to write, and what does God say to him? He hears a voice saying, don't write it. Seal it up. Seal it up. And now at the end of this book, John sees this glorious message and God expressly says to him, don't seal it up. What's he saying? Open the book. Keep it open. Those who would basically tell us, seal up this book, we can't understand it. It's too mysterious. They don't listen to what Jesus is saying. Don't seal it up. Read it. Apply it. Understand it. Come into its relevance and its reality for you today. Seal it not up. Why? For the time is at hand. It's relevant to the way you live your life today. Friends, don't shy away from reading this book. Don't shy away from thinking about the realities of our eternal state. Don't shy away from thinking about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Let it be something that is real to you and that is relevant to the way you live your daily life. But then let's go on to verse 11. 
This verse may be a little confusing to you. It was a little confusing to me. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Do any of you understand what he's saying there? One way to read it is almost as if God's saying, you want to be wicked? Hey, let go ahead and be wicked. You want to be righteous? Go ahead and be righteous. No skin off my back. That's not what God's saying here. We need to connect it to verse 10 because there's no difference. There's, there's no disconnect. Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Here, I think, is what John is saying. Here's what the Spirit is saying through this passage. He's saying, John, open the book. Let everyone read it. Let everyone hear the message of what is coming in the eternal state. And at that point, let the chips fall where they may. What's he saying? What's he saying to us? Not only should we be reading and understanding what our eternal destiny is, we should be opening the book for other people. We should be telling those around us there is judgment coming. God has an eternal state in which the curse is going to be reversed. This is what my Bible tells me about an eternal state, what it's going to be. And he tells me that Jesus is returning imminently at any time. The judge is at the door. We better get right with God. And at that point, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. I think, again, what the Spirit is saying is, you open the book, you don't seal it up. And then let the chips fall where they may. In other words, don't be intimidated not to proclaim the good news of the eternal state and what God has in store for those that are righteous, that some people are going to remain filthy, that some people are going to reject it, they're going to mock at it, they're going to scoff at it. He says, don't seal the book. Open it and proclaim it. This is another message that we see throughout the Bible. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 2 as I was studying this. Paul says, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, what's our job? It's to proclaim and then let the chips fall where they may. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death and to the other, the savor of life unto life. What is our job? To live and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and then trust him to bring the increase as he has provided. Friends, what is the ultimate message, the instruction that the Spirit of God is sending to us? It is this. The coming of Jesus Christ and the immediate redemptive state that it will draw us into for eternity is of exceptional relevance to you today. The way you live your Christian life today will show how real to you those eternal truths about our eternal state are. The more real 
This book is to you and all the glories that it proclaims about as C.S. Lewis would say, that weight of glory that is ahead of us. The more holy you will live, the more motivated in Christian service, and the more bold in your proclamation to others. I'm reminded of what John himself says in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And he says, And every man that hath this hope in him, this conscious reality of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, purifies himself even as he is pure. Behold, I come quickly. That means it's real. And that means it's more relevant to us than we could possibly know. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that in the struggle and all the drama, in all the, the, the hustle and bustle of our daily lives, we so often miss this thread that Jesus is coming quickly, that he has an eternal state for us that is beyond the wildest imagination of perfection. And he intends for that to shape the way we live today. I pray, Father, for myself and for each one of us here that we would give up our small ambitions, that we would be willing to live in the reality of who you are and of what you have promised for us. May that change the way we live, even tonight and even this week. Let's pause with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. How are you living your life today, friend? How am I living mine? If someone looked at the way I spend my time, would they say that person believes that the coming of Jesus is relevant to them? Does my life demonstrate that the things of this book are real to me? Let's allow the Spirit of God to search our hearts tonight. Behold, I come quickly. Father, what a shameful testimony it is when your people live practically as atheists, proclaiming your name with their voice, but living with a heart that is far from you. And I pray, Father, that we would be challenged, we would be exhorted, encouraged, and we would be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.